fire alarm is gone. Welcome to the Cognitive Rampage. I'm Adam Lowry. We're sponsored today by Counseling and Psychological Services of Central Florida. That's cpscfl.com. It's a private counseling practice backed by Dr. Parker Mott, uh, a psychologist who offers comprehensive services, individual counseling, children, couples, family, depression, grief, the list goes on and on. Anything in the mental health realm that you could be dealing with, Counseling and Psychological Services of Central Florida can meet those needs for you. You can find them at cpscfl.com. They're at 310 Dillard Street, Suite 190 in Winter Garden, Florida. You can reach the office directly at 407-347-0661. That's Counseling and Psychological Services of Central Florida, cpscfl.com, providing high-quality therapeutic services in a professional and comfortable setting. My guest today on the show is Dr. Parker Mott, a psychologist, author, and theorist. He's a good friend of mine. We really dove deep into the cognitive theories and theoretical applications as they pertain to counseling, uh, life, and psychology, but we got really deep into talking about where the cognitive theories come from, where the basis of them are, uh, and what the root of all these ideas come from. But uh, we really expanded on the topic. I really enjoyed talking to uh, Dr. Parker Mott. It is so good to have you back, Dr. Parker Mott. It is wonderful to have you back in the cave, my brother. How have you fucking been, man? I have been great, uh, working hard, getting this practice started, Counseling and Psychological Services of Central Florida. Uh, it's up and coming. The office is ready, and i uh, going to get ready to start taking uh, new clients here pretty soon. So it's pretty exciting, um, like having that. a pretty good uh, media, pre- set, uh, media presence out there with a website up at www.counseling cfl.com slick one uh, also on uh facebook twitter and google plus soon so uh it's exciting doing that and it's especially exciting kind of coming on shows like this where i can um also add videos and articles and things to uh the website in order to kind of spread uh, mental health out there as well yeah uh, right into the advertising i love it my boy that is my boy, Doctor Parker. <laughs> right, right into it, man. Waste no time. But, but seriously, I, I know you've been really excited, man. I'm, you know, it's been difficult getting you, you know, back into the cave um, since being technically the very first guest we ever had on the Cognitive Rampage. You, yeah. you, and Eric Rittenberry. Me in the shadow, Eric Rittenberry. <laughs> That's oh, right. Got to get him back on here. This is great. Your, your setup's amazing. Oh, we're changed, man. I mean, but I mean, I appreciate you guys coming on that first show, you know, and chatting. But you know, to have you back on, like I said, you've been very busy. You know, like you said, setting up your uh, counseling and psychological services of Central Florida. <laughs> they all worked that in there. Yeah. But you have been busy, man, and setting up out there and moving back up from you know Fort Myers and you know returning home to Winter Garden, man. It's got to. I don't know. How's it feel coming back home? You know, to Winter Garden. Uh, it's great. It it really is. You know, I mean, there's obviously any sort of mixed feelings when you uh, move to a new place and, uh, but it's great being around, um, 
being around friends and family again and the outpouring from friends of the past has been great and reconnecting with uh, people from the past has been great. So all in all, it's it's been really exciting, really yeah. exciting. Now, what were you doing? I mean, I knew some of the stuff that you were doing down in Fort mm-hmm. Myers, but um, now it's, you know, moving the, the private practice up here mm-hmm. now for, you know, opening up in Winter Garden here. And I mean, what, what's a, a focus? I, I know you see just about anything and everything, right? Yeah, I'm a little bit more of a generalist. Um, I do see um, anywhere from children from ages five, you know, on the way up, uh, adolescents, college-age students, adults, um, and the elderly population as well, older adults as well. Um, I do couples marital therapy, um, psychological testing bariatric evaluations, um, ADHD testing, achievement testing. So I, I do a little bit of everything. You're walking uh, DSM-5. <laughs> well, no, starting yes, uh, starting yesterday, it's now the ICD-10 that uh, everybody goes by. Uh-huh. So at least insurance companies go by. Right. So, uh, But, yes, the DSM. DSM. It shows you where I'm at in the um, academia part of everything nowadays. But, no, honestly... Uh, I, I'm glad you brought that up, man, because, you know, we wanted to come specific on, on the show today, you and I, you know, mm-hmm. um, for those of you listening, it, it's going to get really deep um, into some theoretical approaches and um, theories that people use in mental health, psychology, etc. So uh, bear with me, you know, I love the fact that you brought the idea that you wanted to talk about and clarify cognitive behavioral theories and approaches and in different ways look you know a, a lot of us out there by now have heard about some form you know cbt or you know mm-hmm. that's the thing right the, no, the, the cognitive th- behavioral therapy seems to be the you know mainstream type of thing and people who don't even seek uh treatments are aware of kind of what that is simply just because of the self-help books and manualized treatments out there you can get in stores so yeah you were saying that in the green room when we were chatting earlier you know a lot of self-help books are kind of based on premises of mm-hmm. cognitive therapy at some in some fashion right and uh, i thought this was a great topic for uh, us to kind of highlight uh, i think it's one that we can kind of bring out to the the mainstream public those who don't know as much about therapy and think it's kind of a mysterious type of process and in some ways it is uh, but i think being able to define it a little bit and i know um, in terms of cognitive uh, theories and specialties, that's one of yours as well. I thought it was a great time for us to discuss that and kind of get into a little bit about your book as well. You know, you can add some of that in. Yeah, I appreciate <laughs> There's it. There's a plug for you too, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the cognitive stuff is, you know, in, in any sense, cognitive behavioral CBT is, you know, it is mainstream, if you will. Finally, it's starting to get there. And, you know, there's all types of offshoots of practices and things like that. And, you know, I, I know practitioners that don't use it still, that don't understand it, don't take that approach. And, and mind you, every approach doesn't fit for everybody. But I will say that cognitive behavioral is mm-hmm. becoming, I think, at least a mainstream, you know, approach. And mm-hmm. so I thought, given the listeners that listen to this, that more than likely will have heard of CBT in some fashion, a background, a history, mm-hmm. you know, maybe we, who, who fucking knows how deep we'll get into it, mm-hmm. but, you know, I mean, maybe we can take them from the beginning or you can, you know, I think I want to try to sit here. I think it may help if I'm the student in this and because some people listen and aren't mm-hmm. going to be able to go at the depth that you can talk, you know, about these things. So uh, I'm going to I'm going to play student, which I will be anyway, mm-hmm. uh, not really just playing student. But, you know, maybe we'll take them through cognitive therapy or 
before it was cognitive therapy or why it became cognitive therapy? Maybe a brief history on it. Absolutely. I, I think starting out with a history, uh, there's two main uh, focuses in terms of uh, theorists, and one is Aaron Beck, who uh, basically invented what's called cognitive theory. Um, and then, you know, one of your favorites, Albert Ellis with uh, REBT, which um, is very similar, a little bit. He was always more challenging um, in terms of the, the patient and challenging their beliefs. I, I uh, love Ellis. His, his <laughs> book, uh, you know, that we were talking earlier, again, Absolutely. was uh, A Guide to Rational Living. And that was the first book in any kind of mental health that I really picked mm -hmm. up a long time ago. And then when I looked up his videos and he's, well, curses. Yes. And didn't give a shit. <laughs> For me, I was like, I love this fucking guy. He, he, he was a different character, and anybody who doesn't, isn't familiar with him would be, uh, should check out some YouTube videos and Albert Ellis. Um, he's got this big giant finger that he loves pointing at people and shaking at them, and uh, it's entertaining, but I think he is one of the main theorists in the field of psychology uh, and should be credited well with a lot of things. Um, but they, they both kind of came about around the same time. Uh, I think things were changing. Uh, the atmosphere was changing from a um, psychoanalytic Freud point of view, which a lot of people didn't buy into so much. Um, cognitive theory and CBT um, were one of the first actual theories that could be researched in a lot of ways, that they could conduct research because it was a little more structured. And yeah. once they were able to structure it, they were able to um, study it better. You know, Freud got a lot of shit, and I give Freud a lot of shit, too. You know, and we all know after he wrote his dream book, everybody kind of wrote him off. And, he, you know, he was out there, and I'm not a psychotherapist either by any stretch of the means. I'm not a Freudian. Um, but I pointed out before that the dude was brave. Because mm -hmm. at the time, dude, it was you had bad chemicals, you had demons in you. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows why? And then this guy... In this religious ran time goes, no, 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 it's not demons. It's because you want to sleep with your mom. <laughs> you know what kind of cojones it takes <laughs> to come out and say that, you know, so for, for the guy to break the mold, you know, mm -hmm. and go that way, I give that. And dude people respect. listened, people listened and uh, some of his things are out there and still kind of seem out there. But if you, you do read and he has a lot of readings, if you do read and go deeper into his things and allow him to kind of explain what he meant about it. Um, with adding your own kind of history and your own take on it, you understand where he was going with it. Uh, and I think the, the whole sexual connotation that it took uh, gave it somewhat of a bad name. But he was also kind of the father of modern uh, therapy in some ways. He did come up with the idea of kind of structuring uh, sessions where you come in for therapy and get treatment. Uh, and I think the, the lasting impression he had was not just kind of on the unconscious, conscious type of thing, but also just in terms of the, the aspect of uh, what sessions are like. Yeah, I mean, and people forget that, you know, because without mm -hmm. those groundworks, you don't get to develop into what we have today as, you know, whatever, any kind of mm -hmm. um, psychotherapeutic treatment. Right. You know, so... You know, I, I didn't mean to cut you off on the history of no. cognitive, but, you know, I just had to, I'm a little big ups to Freud there, huh? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think Freud does have a place in, in a lot of different therapies, including cognitive behavioral, and we can kind of talk about 
uh, where some of his get integrated into where CBT is now. Now, who was first? See, because for me, mm-hmm. when Ellis came out, Ellis was like a Freud to me because mm-hmm. Ellis kind of came out and said, no, 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 it's none of those things. Mm-hmm. You know, it's dialogue, what you're thinking, right? It became more of a self-control thing. Was he the first that really started coming against, you know, the psychotherapy or the, you know, the the, the psychoanalytic approach? Well, I, I think we can keep tracking things back maybe even thousands of years. I, I believe that cognitive therapy in general is, is something that's kind of been packaged and repackaged over the years. Um, you know, you can trace some of it back all the way to uh, there's aspects of cognitive therapy and CBT that are, are, are kind of philosophies of Buddhism. Um, also, if you look at other cultures, um, Aztec Indian cultures, uh, Mexican Indian cultures, uh, different cultures, their philosophies are very similar to what cognitive theory is. Um, so it does seem like this is a philosophy that maybe has traveled to continents or uh, maybe mel- multiple people have kind of come up with on their own. Um, in terms of our own culture, um, you know, things kind of like the secret, you know, self-help books, anything kind of thought-based, cognitively-based, um, I don't think it's really all that new of a thing. I think it was more of maybe the time and place where several people came together uh, in the field of psychology that were able to uh, bring some of these philosophies together, um, collect it within a theory, and then put it out there in terms of um, you know a description of psychopathology, how it develops, uh, a model, and a model of treatment. So they were able to make kind of a, a conceptualization of um, these thought-based philosophies. And I like how you take it all the way back into, you know, ancient cultures, the, these ideas, because, you know, is there an original idea, right? I, I like to think that, you know, Lee Camp actually talked on one of his um, uh, Redacted Tonight episodes where he was talking about how an open source of ideas actually is would be very beneficial to the human race as if there weren't patents in these things that held us down of everything because every idea how do you own an idea because mm-hmm. even that idea that you have was built off another idea that someone else had so to say that we own ideas on some level mm-hmm. and it speaks to those same theor- theoretical notions so really are they the first just to organize it in this fashion like you were saying Sure, I think everybody can kind of take a a theory on life, organize it, uh, put some labels to it, and package it in some ways. And I think that's kind of what's been done in in several of the the pop culture psychology type of self-help books. Um, I know, you know, one of the popular self-help books out there, which a lot of psychologists recommend um, and has been very effective for people is uh, Feeling Good by David Burns. Mm. Um, that's kind of one of the modern-day um, CBT or modern-day cognitive theory type of self-help books out there. Um, that's kind of a derivative off of, off of those original cognitive theories. But I think, you know, if you do look through the ages, I mean, I, I have books that I found in the garbage, in fact, <laughs> that uh, I took out and read and was interested in. And uh, it does seem like it's something that's been passed down through the years or kind of repackaged or maybe someone co- has come up with it with a, an original idea and added to it or reframed it or something. So, And it, I think they're all important because, you know, uh, somebody may respond really well to REBT and Ellis um, that might not respond so well to Aaron Beck's type of cognitive theory. And sometimes it's not about 
the actual intervention uh, as much as how it's delivered. Uh, so sometimes just the wording of things can hit people in a certain way that is, is more effective and they connect a little bit more to that. So I think it's, it's important to have those different uh, thought-based cognitive theories out there and treatments out there. That's necessary. You know, you're right. It speaks to the individual. You know, everything that I've learned in therapy is about, you know, not using a concrete theoretical approach to every person, but yet customizing the approach to the person. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of these services that are offered out there through facilities and Medicare, et cetera. I mean, these are cookie cutter services, you know, mm -hmm. cookie cutter approaches that they're offering as a one size fits all approach. Absolutely, and that's actually been one of the criticisms of CBT is that the joke is that a trained monkey can administer some of these cognitive behavioral treatments. Um, the manual-based treatments is what they're called, um, and it can get a little dangerous because insurance companies get in, into this too, and they want specific manual-based treatments. Um, I think anybody out there who's looking for good therapy won't go with a manual-based treatment. Um, I think it, it has to be elaborate more. a little bit more on the manual based treatment because a lot of listeners yeah. aren't going to know that difference mm -hmm. between what a manual based treatment is versus mm -hmm. what is the other kind of treatment. Well, because cognitive behavioral therapy is something that was able to be kind of packaged and um, described as empirical in, data, as empirical data, where there is a lot of research on it, it's able to be structured. Uh, people were able to take that and put it into a basically a, a self help book. You know, to where you go to a therapist and a therapist would just hand you a bunch of worksheets to do. Uh, and you would follow these steps, one, two, three, four. That, that um, is government facility treatment. <laughs> that is sit in a group, let's mm -hmm. read this worksheet together, now let's read it aloud and cry mm -hmm. about it. Absolutely. And I think um, anybody who, who truly knows therapy knows that it's an abstract process in a certain amount. Um, it's, an art, it's an art form. It is an art form. It's not a. It's a science, but it's not a. An, it's an abstract science, is what I like to think of it as. Um, and I think, uh, you know, in terms of CBT, um, I, I got to take you back because I yeah. blew you way off course. You were talking about a manual-based approach, separating those two. Right. Um, I think the the manual-based um, approaches uh, they lose the relationship that you develop with your therapist, that's the most important part. And that's right. We were talking about how it had empirical data. This mm -hmm. is, we were trying to help the listeners understand the difference between right. the, the and, manual base. And, and I think the good thing, it's good and bad. Um, the whole idea behind CBT in a lot of ways, and, and as, a, as a psychologist, and this is in what I encourage my uh, clients to do, is really to become their own therapist. I teach them to become their own therapist, to analyze their own thoughts, to recognize that. And by doing so, they take responsibility for their own change. Um, sometimes I, you know, I might suggest certain homework things, but I'm not going to hand them a book and say, okay, start with page one and go to page five and come back next week. Um, I'm going to be more interact with them, and I'm going to be more teaching with them. Um, so I'm going to teach them more about their thoughts and educate them about the process. See, I like that. The, the teaching part is different, you know, mm -hmm. because uh, I met, you know, I've seen enough therapists do their thing, and it seems as if sometimes they tiptoe in this uh, pompous way as if they walk around the client going, I know what to tell you, but I'm not going to, you know what I mean, as if they withhold <laughs> the information 
like I I have things I can't teach you all the way, mm-hmm. you know, and and I'm this isn't all of them at all. I've just no, seen a few, no. right? But I like what you're talking about that teaching method, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, that's what my book is trying to do in the same sense is going look mm-hmm. apply this step of approach. You know, I pulled from academia and stuff to try to organize that. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're saying, and I, I like how you you know you really try to teach yourself out of the Absolutely. job. Absolutely, and and I tell my clients that you know if they're always a little suspicious that I'm I know information about them that they don't know about themselves. I, you know, I clarify that, you know, if, if I know something about you, I'm always going to be open and honest. Uh, and I'm going to share that information with you because it's not going to do any good for me to have it and not share that with you. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a part of the, the therapeutic relationship that's so important aside from uh, any sort of intervention like CBT. Well, right. That's the, that's the most important, you know, the, oh, con- absolutely. the, the connection between the, the person and the practitioner, you know, working that relationship out. That's first and foremost. You know, the approach you could, I don't know, you could pick a dumbass approach, but if you have a trusting connection mm-hmm. when you build, um, what's what for the listeners, what would be an approach, say, outside of a manual based, you know, empirical data approach? I mean, Essentially, you know, what you're saying, just to clear, help the listeners clarify, is that manual-based approaches are what insurance companies accept as an approach for you to apply to clients uh, because it's somehow empirical-backed and packaged in a way that they can bill properly, that they can see outcomes and track, etc. What would be a treatment outside something that's a manual-based treatment? Uh, well, like psychodynamic theory, psychoanalytic theory, um, more of a humanistic type of approach. Um, also, uh, interpersonal therapy, uh, but all of those are starting to become uh, more widely accepted, even within the uh, insurance community. So uh, I know IPT, uh, interpersonal therapy, uh, they've now been able to collect enough research on that to suggest that that's empirically validated treatment for um, certain disorders or, or issues, and uh, as long as it's empirically validated and shows it works, um, insurance companies reimburse it. All right. Now, how far behind are the insurance companies for approving certain theories that are actually shown to be effective? They don't get too involved in a lot of that. Uh, basically, uh, they give a couple of guidelines about what an individual counseling session is, and whatever's kind of done with that is up to the therapist in a lot of ways. Okay, so they still mm-hmm. kind of leave it open. So They do. Mm-hmm. All right, so necessarily you don't have to practice then with a empirical-backed uh, manual. Well, you ha- what you have to do is not go rogue and just make up your own therapy and throw it out there and uh, say that this, is, this works for depression when there is no research that it works for depression. So I think, you know, anything within the realm of the field of psychology in terms of a, a respectable and researched theory is generally widely accepted. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about trying to become, you know, teaching your clients to become their own therapist. And, you know, how does, you know, for those listening, you know, that have heard of CBT mm-hmm. uh, or maybe even just know the basics, you know, well, what are you teaching them? I mean, walk them through the creation then of that CT, you know, cognitive therapy into what it is you're really trying to relate and go after. Absolutely. I think this is a, a great time to kind of just introduce what cognitive behavioral therapy is. Yeah. Um, Basically, the basic premise of it is uh, there's an order by which an event happens, which then triggers a thought, which then leads to a feeling and then a behavior. So there's a a general progression through um, between thoughts and feelings. And oftentimes I start out with my my clients and I say, you know, 
if I were to tell you, you know, there's a, a cycle here, what would you think would come first, thoughts or feelings? And a lot of people think it's the feelings that come first, and then that triggers the thought. And that that tends to be incorrect in the most, most senses, that it's actually the thought that triggers the feeling. And in, in, in my in my book, I call that a principle of change, and <laughs> and I call that a B to B, that a belief to a thought to mm -hmm. a feeling to a behavior or a B to B. Yeah, and starting out, uh, first of all, there has to be an event. The event can be anything. It can be you and me sitting here talking. It can get, be, you know, a college student getting an A, B, or C on a report card. Uh, it could be a breakup. Uh, the event can be anything. But what happens is the event then leads to a, fee, a, a thought. This thought is basically kind of the perception center. The thought is formulated by basically all of your experience in life, uh, everything that's happened to you. It can be uh, your family. It can be society. It can be culture. It can be belief, um, you know, your history. Uh, even maybe genetics plays a part. It formulates like a filter. And then this event gets filtered through this thought, this perception center, that shapes the perception, then then triggers the feeling. Um, there always has to be this thought first because we can't, you know, if we didn't have um, this perception center of thoughts, we'd all be walking around random feeling, feeling randomly for no reason, angry, sad, happy for no reason. The environment would just be inflicting all sorts of emotional <laughs> rampage upon, upon your interaction with it. Yeah, yeah it, would, it would be a feeling rampage. Ah. Oh, man. <laughs> So what happens is the, the event takes a perception. This perception is based on all of our past history, uh, everything that's happened to us, and our beliefs. Uh, and then that's what triggers the feeling. And then comes the behavior. The behavior is basically, depending on the feeling, let's say something triggers anxiety or depression or sadness, a lot of times the behavior is there to uh, cope with that feeling. I love it, man. <laughs> I, you know, so feelings are basically byproducts. Thank you. Uh, but you can also kind of look at it like a drive or, or also a motivator for behavior as well. I would agree because the, you know, the emotions, those feelings, they can also be positive in a, in a fashion. You know, we can use those strengths and those emotions. So to, to, to say they're worthless, I used to do that early in my practice. Mm. You know, I used to start out a group sometimes and I'm like, listen, fuck your feelings. And it would get your attention, right? It's just to get your attention. They go, wait, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm going to listen. Just hear me out. All right. So, you know, you're trying to keep, you know, some people that are going through it focused, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, a lot of people, it's hard. One of the other principles of change in the book I talk about is the principle of concrete beliefs. You know, this notion that, you know, you have a belief and this belief creates a truth, the only truth, when really you and I both know there is no truth, just mm -hmm. a perception of it, like mm -hmm. you spoke to it. And, we have these concrete beliefs that are created from our past experiences, everything that you said there. We have our past experiences. They concrete a certain beliefs we have. Then we react to an environment based on a past experience and a perception we have. Thus, we have a thought. That thought then creates the feeling. That leads to that other principle of change I talked about, B to B. And Absolutely. It's the same shit we talked about in the beginning, how, we, how you package the idea. How you package the idea. And it's how I learned it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? That's how I, I love it, man. Yeah, absolutely. And you know the, how hard it is to convince people, you know, yeah, of course you fucking do. But when you're trying to talk to somebody and go, listen, all right, I want you to feel joy right now. What'd you think? All right. All right. Mm -hmm. I want you to feel anger. What'd you think? 
Mm-hmm. But but it's hard when I mean it, it was hard for me to grasp that well, no, that notion, it, dude. It really is difficult. It is. It is, and and that's actually great questions for to ask somebody because what's the first thing you do when you ask somebody? If I were to say, you know, I want you to feel joy right now, what do you do to trigger that? You think of something. Right, you think of a past experience mm-hmm. to to conjure up the emotion. Mm-hmm. Family, enjoyable events, something that's joyful in order to trigger that in enjoyment feeling. Uh, so people kind of know this internally without even knowing it. Um, and, and, you know, the research, um, all the neurological research also supports the notion of how thoughts precede feelings. Because if you look in terms of some of the brain scans and where the electronical events go throughout the brain, there is a process by which they start kind of more in a cognitive, cerebral, um, frontal hemisphere of the brain and move more into the emotional center. So even in terms of brain scans, it does show that there's a cognitive event that precedes the feelings. We're getting so far on the brain image. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, I love how the science is starting to advance the processes. You know, um, I don't know, maybe I'm on a limb, but... I guess people always need someone to, I want to say always need someone to talk to. That would be mm-hmm. irrational, right? Oh, yeah. But, I mean, there could be a day that, you know, science is making so much advancement from epigenetics to brain imaging, scanning, all sorts of ways, you know, that the talk therapy aspect, mm-hmm. you know, you know how important, you know, because the cognitive behavioral or cognitive therapy, REBT, all of these things, in a sense, play into the talk version of it, the, um, mm-hmm. the you know, the self-talk, right? And with it all being centered around the talking, but with science making so much, you know, leeway mm-hmm. daily and, and studies everywhere from gut bacteria research to, to brain imaging, as you were just Absolutely. discussing, to all even psychedelic research to mm-hmm. all kinds of things. I mean, could the talk therapy aspect be a dinosaur one day? I don't think so. Uh, I, I think what talk therapy does is there's there's more and more. Um, people in society, you know, our culture is shifting more to this all-natural, getting away from um, mad, man-made chemicals to treat things. Uh, there's a time and place for those, I know that. Um, and I've utilized those very efficiently and, you know, modestly in my practice. But um, I think more and more people, specifically when I was looking in the college counseling environment, people were, you know, I was surprised and pleased about how many people wanted a more naturalistic, holistic way of treating their depression, anxiety, or problems in general. I, I would agree. It's definitely going that way. And I mean, I live that mm-hmm. way. I love that. So could it get so far advanced to where you could manipulate the genetics, which also has been shown not to have as much influence Mm -hmm. as we once thought it did the genetic influence Mm -hmm. some would argue with me i'm not saying yes or no nature nurture there's always another side yeah right but some people are starting to argue that question isn't even a question that it's all environmental well right i mean epigenetics starts mm -hmm. to argue a certain way too but i mean could it get far enough to where we could manipulate everything but i guess then we're still would be left to the perception of what is normal then right well i think you get into the the whole idea of the quick fix which was where we're seeing medication fail, Agreed. is that medication works as a Band-Aid. You cut yourself, what do the first thing you do? You slap a Band-Aid on it. works very efficiently. But therapy actually works to fix the problem outside. You know, Band-Aids, like medications, antidepressants, they can kind of help with the day-to-day things, you know, help reduce sadness, help you get better control of your life, maybe sleep a little bit better, 
function better. Fuck it, that synthetic. You know, shit. some things out there, but we some work. people need it. I, I, yeah. I, let me quit playing. But some people <laughs> really need it. But seriously, I'm with you on the holistic mm-hmm. approach. I love that way. I was just thinking about that notion, right? Because right. in cognitive anything, it's mm-hmm. really heavily talk based. Whether it's well, um, yeah, like you have to fix the problem. You can't just put the Band-Aid on it. Agreed. For me, the synthetic issue is treating symptoms. You know, I think, you know, aside from things like schizophrenia and Agreed. some bipolar disorders. Um, real. Uh, real, disorder. real diagnosable bipolar disorders and not uh, something that, you know, your primary care physician treats you for without being ever assessed for. Um, ADHD as well. Uh, you need to have a psychologist, um, somebody who can do some psychological testing in order to get a proper diagnosis. Don't just go by on something where you meet somebody for 15 minutes or 20 minutes and they send you a diagnosis. Um, I don't think you can truly diagnose somebody in just one session. You can collect some of the symptoms and stuff, but I think a true diagnosis takes time and you have to be able to get to know the person and see how they react over time. And the environment's key to that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the environment's key to what's happening. And I there. think that's why, you know, therapy isn't going to get outdated. I think as long as insurance companies reimburse for it, it's not going to go anywhere. And I think it's up to all of us, you know, all, everybody out there who's an insurance carrier to speak up and demand mental health services. Um, but I think that, you know, the counseling works. You know, it's just like I talk about the brain scans. Um, counseling basically helps rewire your brain. I, you know? I'm with you. You know, I'm an advocate of it. And it's just a thought I've been thinking about recently, you know. I mean, think 50, 60 years from now, you know. But then, like I said, we're still left to that perception of then who's judging what we're manipulating to be normal, right, whether mm-hmm. from a genetic standpoint or anything else. You know, so I agree with you in the holistic approach because truly, you know, masking symptoms, avoiding symptoms, uh, or treating symptoms doesn't help anything at all. And mm-hmm. I, I agree with you for now that, you know, the the talk therapy aspects of it, in the approach, but the interpersonal connection, I think, with the one-on-one is, is the go-to weapon. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I, I would also say look, that, look, there's a lot of notions out there that there's a lot of bad counselors and therapists, et cetera. Absolutely. And, and, and I agreed with that to a long, long extent, you know, oh, yeah. and so there's the, some but, poorly trained, but I would tell you that I, I was thinking on a notion. What if there are truly no really bad therapists or counselors, all right? There's those mm-hmm. awful ones, right? We get it. There's always the small percentage, right? Sure. But what if because they're held within such a uh, a framework, a conservative framework to be able to practice, right? Because what are we taught? We're taught that the personality of you as a practitioner is really what is important and what's applying in the connection with the um, with the client or the person or the individual. Mm-hmm. And so if that connection is allowed to be made, but yet you are confined within a framework of some manual approach or mm-hmm. some Medicare-adjusted approach, is it truly that maybe the therapist, it's not really the fault line with the therapist, but yet the framework that these practitioners are, are held within, the constraints they're held to by some formal empirical insurance construction? <laughs> well, I, yes and no, but I would an artist... Uh, be a bad artist if they were limited to their, you know, picture. I mean, uh, I think a, a good therapist is going to work within a framework of um, what they do. 
And I think, it, you know, a bad artist is a bad artist. A good artist is a good artist. It doesn't matter how large the, the portrait is they're working on. And that's so they can perception. make it work. And that's perception. Yeah, so. and, and I've, I've met several therapists, and I'm like, wow, this, I can't believe anybody would go to this person. <laughs> and yet they hold a full caseload because it works for some people. So I think there is something unique about the relationship aside from the knowledge. Um, that, you, know, it's, you know, therapy works, and you don't have to have, um, you know, the best therapist out there in the world to do it in order to help you. Uh, I think the most important part is finding somebody that you're comfortable with, uh, you like, and uh, you believe in. You know? Yeah, that con- that connection's serious. But in a lot of people, there's a huge stigma out there too with mental health and counseling, you know, and and seeing therapists, etc. I think that's lightening up. I think the stigma is definitely dropping. Uh, mm-hmm. I know even if you just visit the West Coast, the notion of therapy mm-hmm. is treated completely different than. Oh, it, yeah, it, it, it's great out there. Uh, you know, the college counseling centers—they, you know, everybody loves group therapy. They love individual therapy. They also have their shamans and witch doctors, and you know, I, I think they, there's a very strong holistic approach out there that's different than the East. Um, the East does hold very closely to. Uh, the traditional counseling treatment um, sessions um, on top of spirituality, uh, in which I, I think spirituality is an important part of all treatment as well. Um, but I, I think it is, you know, regionally it, there's differences. Yeah, it, it definitely. And but we were talking, like I said, we're going to go, you know, back to how you were saying that CBT and CT these things mm-hmm. can be traced back to. You even said Buddhism to a point. And absolutely, th- I, I think the key to um, the key to really all therapy, in, in fact, and specifically cognitive behavioral therapy, is awareness. The key is the recognition um, because, uh, you know, I talked about the, the process of events, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. The key to all of this is recognizing your thoughts. And so many people are oblivious to their thoughts because thoughts can be, that yeah, they can be self-talk. Well, we're trained. But, um, this culture trains you to... Yeah. Well, how do you feel? How are you mm-hmm. feeling today? Everything is, you know, uh, is pushed to you about feelings. And, well, you know, thoughts are also very unconscious. And the key is to slow down and recognize the thought that's triggering the feeling. Because the truth of the matter is, just like our feelings are not accurate, uh, our thoughts aren't accurate. Uh, what we're thinking isn't always really correct. And that's where psychopathology and problems develop. Um, you know, you think... Um, I get a C on a test in college. That's the event. The thought is, wow, I didn't do too well on this. Um, I better study and do better next time. And you don't feel as bad, but you feel maybe motivated to do it next time. Well, the same process. A college student gets a C on a test. They have the thought, I'm a failure. I'm never going to make anything. I'm going to end up living on the streets and never have a family and never succeed in life. And then they feel depressed, anxious. The problem lies in the thoughts, and we're not always aware of that, but it's in our belief system that you spoke about earlier. Um, And there's like these gremlins that kind of get into our thought process, and these gremlins really distort, and that's what it's called is thought distortions or irrational thoughts, irrational thinking. Um, That's basically built upon some of our good and bad history in life. Uh, That's what formulates um, basically the gunk on our perception filter that clouds the way we see the world. Um, A good description of it is if I was holding up a red rose right now, and I handed you a pair of gray-colored sunglasses and asked you to tell me what color the rose was, what would you say? Gray? Yeah, you'd probably say it's some sort of distorted 
Right, red color there. I would go red if I had a color shirt because of rose. <laughs> well, it, exactly. You would see the world through a pair of gray-colored sunglasses. Now, the key is awareness and basically aware that you're doing these thought distortions, that you sit back and you say, okay, I see this rose and I see it as gray, but I know in reality that's not really gray, that it's red. And I'm just seeing this situation in a way that's not completely accurate. And there's a number of thought distortions out there that um, color the way we see reality or shape the way we see reality. And one of them is called dichotomous thinking, traditionally known as all or nothing thinking, black or white thinking, um, perfect or failure, you know, good or bad, getting caught up in those dichotomies, those polarities in thinking. Uh, another one is generalization, where Basically, you take one thing and kind of generalize it to a bigger, you know, uh, picture. Maybe you don't do so well on one test, but you don't generalize yourself as a complete failure. Um, other ones like magnification, taking something that's generally pretty small and making it into something big, making a mountain out of a molehill. That, yeah. What is uh, Ellis lean to that? Like the term <laughs> I like to use, which is awfulization. We awfulization. Aw right, you awfulize something. And that gets into the words, right? The dialogue that we uh -huh. use to awfulize something mm -hmm. um, is what using words like always, never, all the time, wouldn't, couldn't, shouldn't, right? I, yeah. I call them determinate words in my book. Yeah, must. We must. were talking about must. <laughs> that would be Ellis's, right? Yeah, Musturbation. Must, Musturbation was Ellis must, was. I must be successful. I must have money. I must, mm -hmm. right? I must do these things, right? And we build that up in our heads with the dialogue. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, jumping con to conclusions, making assumptions. Those are also thought distortions. Always, never. Um, emotional reasoning. You know, uh, discounting the positives where we we don't really internalize the positives as much as we look at our ba bad parts. I call that finding the silver lining. <laughs> you know, we, we tend to criticize well. You know, we, we get real critical of the shit that's going on, right? And we forget to find the silver lining in those ways. You know, those words I was talking about, the determinant mm -hmm. words, uh, I even write in a book where I said, if you ever notice, your body doesn't even want to say that shit. Because what do you do? You go, you always do this to me. Yes. You're never yes. going to change. Mm -hmm. right? It's like you don't even want to say it. It's just forcing it out. Because technically, what, there's 86,400 seconds in a day? If somebody's always doing something to you? <laughs> exactly. So I, I think it, and those are, the thought distortions are what uh, really kind of get into our thoughts and uh, cause problems in our lives. They are the things that help uh, they cause depression, they cause anxiety, they cause a whole number of psychological issues and problems in our relationships. Uh, but coming back to it is it, the key to all of this treatment is recognizing your thoughts and recognizing that when you do it. And that's one of the rare times I do prescribe homework is I give them a thought of these thought distortions and I say, take the sheet with you, uh, read it four or five times a day, stick it on your window, keep it on your desk. Get familiar with these because what they do is they help, um, you know, recognizing in the moment that, hey, oh, gosh, you know what? I'm jumping to conclusions on this or I'm making assumptions or I'm labeling this, you know, and it prevents the feeling. Or if you get to the feeling, it talks you back from the feeling to ground yourself in reality again. I love it. It's speaking more to, again, what I talk about is reflecting. You know, in the book is, is learning. I call it RSA, rational self-analysis. Mm -hmm. You know, I say when when generally you're making statements, 
you know, it ends with periods or exclamation, exclamation points, excuse me. And so we make these statements, right? But we know statements are just perceived fact. Mm-hmm. And so we take a feeling, then we go, oh, here's a statement. That must be fact, right? There's the masturbation. So this has to be true, even though we know there is no truth, right? Mm-hmm. There is no reality. It's just based it's on your perception. socially constructed by yourself. Everybody's reality is constructed by their own experiences. And I, I think... Uh, you know, the key is awareness, you know, being in the moment, kind of going back to the, the premise of Buddhism, um, you know, in mindfulness. And that's where I think mindfulness, if you want to use that term a little bit more in our, our culture, that uh, mindfulness and centering yourself and being in the moment is the key to being aware of your thoughts, your feelings and your proper reactions in the moment. Yeah, they they use that word a lot these days. Is the mindfulness? Is I I do mindfulness practice, mm-hmm. and it, it, I can't help it. But I, mean, I agree with the notion of mindfulness. I, I do. I mm-hmm. love it. But it seems like a spin on you know awareness. It just seems like a, a different spin on being aware of your own thoughts, being aware of your now of what's happening. Mindfulness is basically a a, a Buddhist technique that was kind of packaged and um, used more so in Western society. Yeah. So I, 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 I love think the it's, notion. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, think I don't it's want great. to hate on it. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to hate on it because it's oh. an idea. If that idea is spreading, that's mm-hmm. a good thing, you know, being present aware, you know, of the now. Mm-hmm. Um, can you go more into actually what the idea of awareness means? Because a lot of people listening, I'm sure, you know, you and I are in the field. This is what we talk mm-hmm. about and do. Um, a lot of people out there are way more educated than they ever used to be. I love the idea that you can find people talking about CBT, right? This is really out there. But uh, I don't know how much time people have to go deeper into that idea of awareness, right? You mm-hmm. hear it in yoga. You hear it in meditation. You hear it in uh, mindfulness practice. What's the awareness really mean well, I, I think it, we hear it so much in yoga and mindfulness practice and, and meditation because that's where we slow down enough in order to hear our body. We we slow down enough to become aware of things. Uh, I think that awareness is basically being aware, basically being attention brought to you in the moment. Each second that ticks by, you are aware of Something within yourself, your surroundings, the greater big picture in some ways. Um, and it can get focused, you know, uh, meditation, for example. One of the, I do some guided meditation at times, and I have people do these techniques in which uh, they might become aware of what it's like to feel their toe in their shoe, or what they, it's like to uh, be aware of the way their shirt feels over their shoulder. And they focus all of their attention, all of their awareness, um, on that one spot to see what it feels like to feel what it's like to have your clothes hanging off of your shoulder or something like that. And I think if we bring that sort of practice into our daily life, we become aware of our thoughts. We become aware of our feelings. We become aware of our surroundings. Instead of kind of walking down the hallway to our office thinking about what we're going to do for lunch or how we're going to do this or that, you know, person who cut us off on the way to work this morning. If we be aware of just being in the moment, what it's like to walk to our office, what it's like feeling-wise, what it's like thinking-wise, what it's like around us, and just being in the moment of what it's like, there is no future, there is no past, there's no, you know, later or before, there's just now. 
And I think that's what really awareness is. Yeah, we're caught in this social construct, though, of always, uh, I say always, that's irrational in itself, but almost pressured to need more, have to excel beyond a point, gain mm -hmm. further access, etc. There's levels of these social environmental influence that push us to experience these stressors within our own lives that almost seem natural with the culture that we experience. And trying to get by those cultural experiences, those cultural influences, those daily created influences that we do with our own dialogue, etc., and be present and accepting. You know, where does that line begin to cross between awareness and accepting? Well, I, I think they come hand in hand uh, in a lot of ways. I think if you are aware in the moment and you're aware of your thoughts, um, then you become more accepting because I think when you judge, when you label, you're not really, you know, you're bringing past experiences, you're bringing past beliefs, you're feeding into uh, negative things from your past or ideas um, that cloud the way you're seeing the situation. But if you're completely aware and recognize that maybe you're bringing something in from the past to the now that's distorting the way you're relating to something, uh, then you'll be much more accepting if you just embrace the experience. Yeah, Leo used to say, uh, my mentor, shout out to Leo Dianabal down in Naples, uh, is, you know, he pulled it, a lot of people say it's not letting your uh, past poison your now or your past poison mm -hmm. your present. Um, we do that, but it's hard for people not to, right? Because the way that we develop our Manchurian candidate reactions, if you will, <laughs> you know, I like to talk in the book, I talk about learning to become an observer of your thoughts rather than a reactor to them and mm -hmm. how you do that. Because, I mean, we do have this primal nature instinct in us, right? To react to environmental stimulation, right? You know, because our life used to depend on it, right? We were sitting at a campfire back in the day and Jim disappears after a twig snaps. Well, next time we're sitting around the fucking campfire and a twig snaps, dude, I'm running, right? We're, we're you know, we, we were, you know, almost taught this, right, to react. But in today's world, it's mm -hmm. not that way, right? So there's these survival fight or flight instincts mixed with the environmental pressures of social constructs mixed with the supposed tos. Absolutely. And I think that's a great lead in into some of the things I wanted to talk about of, uh, you know, just for our listeners out there, some of the top things that people struggle with is depression, anxiety and substance abuse. And I think when you experience something like depression, uh, it is, you know, that it, that's what that is. It's some form of past survival or adaptive skills that have either been used very effectively in the past and learned to become patterns that you've taken into situations that you don't need to use those any longer, um, and then create maladaptive patterns. Um, I, I call them, and it's, this is strange, man. You've read the book, I think. Uh, I call them, as m many people do, like I said, there's no original idea. We all build off each other. I just title it to what I title it, which is Early Life Victories. Mm -hmm. You know, and those early life victories could be just surviving an abusive childhood, surviving mm -hmm. a uh, bad marriage, uh, you know, tons of, you know, certain traumatic events, or at least we label traumatic events. And we spin our con constructs on that, our beliefs, you know, about the world, others and ourselves. Yeah, I think, you know, we use the term defense mechanisms. Yeah. And I think the defense mechanisms are they become defense mechanisms but at one point in their life they were effective coping skills 
that taken out of that environment, we continue to use them, but continue to use them in situations where we don't need to use them anymore, and they cause us problems. And then many times uh, we build an environment around us to suit the skills. So we may despise the environment or know its negative influence, but we build it anyway because it suits our skills or our coping mechanisms, our uh, early life victories. <laughs> pick a That's title. why we continue to pick uh, maladaptive relationships to be in. Uh, people who aren't healthy to be around, uh, jobs that aren't fitting for us. You know, it, it's uh, self-handicapping <laughs> is kind of a, a, well, a term for it's it. It's comfortable, right? People, it's, it's comfortable. comfortable. Our yes. skills work there. We don't have to self-reflect, right? That's what I'll start talking about. <laughs> Jeez. We, look, we take the path of least resistance, right? Because we're, mm-hmm. we're vulnerable to instant reward. And so when we don't make decisions based on our own philosophies and we're making them on emotional reactions, environmental um, uh, influences and possible rewards or outcomes, you know, we're just mm-hmm. we're just kind of floating and moving, just aimlessly bouncing off of these concrete beliefs we have that, you know, just push us into walls, man. Absolutely. And uh, I think w- one of the things is uh, in ter- going back to the cognitive therapy thing is Beck, it's called Beck's cognitive triad. Uh, he developed that right around uh, 1976, and basically it was one of the first theories of uh, depression, um, where basically uh, the triad is the self, the world, and the future. Um, when you have negative views of the self, uh, you tend to be feel worthless. Um, when you have negative views of the world or environment, you view it as being unfair and when you have negative views of the future, you end up being hopeless. And hopelessness is one of the key features of not just depression, but it's one of the key features that they found in terms of uh, suicides. And, you know, in my experience, it's one of the, the worst forms of depression is when, um, yeah, yesterday stinks, today stinks. But when you think tomorrow is going to stink, too. Uh, that's one of the most um, painful forms of depression. And that is one of the first theories is kind of those, the worthlessness, the unfairness, and the hopelessness, the cognitive triad. And um, all of which consist of those uh, thought distortions uh, that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I mean, our thoughts are... are so key in what we do and develop but people like you said it i forget them we all forget them you know there's times where you don't even it doesn't feel like you have the thought right because the mm-hmm. moment you're living in it it, it just feels so real right because <laughs> you know you feel like they just made you angry right mm-hmm. you feel like right and it's so hard in those moments it's, especially when you've lived them mm-hmm. or you're continuing to live them on any level of severity and then have to say that wait I created this perception here. You know, I pushed myself. You know what there. that's called? It's called a cognitive bias. The cognitive bias is basically the way we construct our social, our the way we construct our our, our reality, the way we view the world, basically. Um, and it's biased because we don't see. You talk about there is no truths. You know, we we construct it the way according to how we construct it, full of those thought distortions, inaccurate beliefs, inaccurate ideas. Um, and they may have been constructed for a very helpful, adaptive purpose at one time that was efficient to the survival of the self. Um, but over time, they've become problems. But that's exactly what it is. When you're in the moment, you truly think that my life stinks. 
and it's going to stink tomorrow, and nothing good is ever going to happen to me. How many thought distortions are included in that? You know, Never. Uh, assumptions, distortions, well, for me, when black I, or white thinking. Um, I tell people, you know, people come to me for a couple of reasons. Number one is they come to me because something's changed in their life, and they're struggling to adapt to it. And they come in, and they can't adapt to life, or something's not changing in their life. And I think one thing you can always guarantee in life is that all things change. And that works in your favor for someone who's depressed a lot of times, is that as much as you think nothing good's going to ever happen, and you can't see anything changing, and you're always going to be sitting on your couch and nothing good's going to happen, um, I promise you, something's going to change one day. Maybe not for the good, but possibly for the good. You know, and I think that's the idea that people get in terms of hopelessness is they think nothing's going to change. Well, we're in a society that focuses on outcome, right? I mean, everything is taught, I mean, is outcome. From the day you go to elementary school and, you, and or younger and you're bringing home satisfactory S's, etc. I mean, your whole value as a being is taught and, in, and embedded in you that the value of who you are is based on how the fuck you perform. So if you bring home a piece of paper with bad performance, well, then you have no fucking value. And the same thing plays into sports. Achievement. Right. And so our value in, in this mm-hmm. cultural, cultural con, or this uh, social construct here, cultural construct, is this performance base. Mm-hmm. You know, and we get lost in this. The bias. Notion. Yeah, we get lost. The bias is ingrained in our belief system that, we con- that ends up constructing our reality of what things are supposed to be. I, that's the supposed to. Should. And Must. Should. There you go. That's right. The <laughs> determinate words, right? Don't shoot all over yourself, right? And, and but the the culture forces that, and then almost almost like fucking clockwork, we pass that down within generation, right? They bring home the report card. What do you do? If it's bad, the first sentence is, "You're better than this." Hold on, you're fucking up now, right? When I when someone taught me that, I was like, "What do you mean? What parent doesn't look at a bad grade and go, you're better than this?'" Well, then this is, expo- <laughs> right? So they explained to me that, like, look. Even if it is a good grade, it causes more problems <laughs> oh, there. Oh, Jesus. Now, now it's different, yeah, right? A... Stop. Get out of my life. <laughs> no, but seriously, you know, when you say something like that, see, the, what was taught to me is the kid at this age registers that, well, who I am is there, is that performance. And so if I'm better than that, if I, if who I can, who I am is better than what that is, well, then who I am must be what that is, the the outcome. The result of what that is must be who I am. Mm-hmm. And so we're taught from that moment that that sentence comes out over and over and over each report card, each report card, that the value of who we are as a person is solely based on our performance. Mm-hmm. And so then as life stretches out and the impossibility of the American dream Social norms, in, yeah. Right? As this stretches in, then... Our performance sometimes doesn't meet the level of what our expectations were. And this performance-based value, I think, is fucking people up. Oh, absolutely. I, I think and it's even more widespread. You know, it is, you know, okay, I don't make good grades. I didn't make the honor roll. Okay, I didn't make the soccer or baseball team. Or, you know, and it, it does. It keep, You know, I didn't get married when I'm supposed to get married, I don't have kids when I'm supposed, I don't have the job I'm supposed to have. I don't have the college degree. I'm supposed, you know, so I think it does. There's always that achievement based thing. And it only takes 
turning on the TV for you to kind of get smacked in the face about what you're not. Reward performance. We pay hundreds of millions of dollars to athletes that put a ball in a hole of some kind. And Mm -hmm. granted, I enjoy it. I'm with you, right? Mm -hmm. But this is performance-based reward, right? So if you go onto a market and you exchange fake imaginary numbers and you do nothing and produce nothing with your work but move numbers and you imaginary make a whole bunch of money from this, Mm -hmm. this is performance-based. We reward that. Oh, yeah. You you bring home straight A's, we reward that, right? What Mm -hmm. if a kid wants to do something? A A kid is interested in something, right? Well, how have you performed? If you've performed, we'll allow you to pursue an interest. Mm-hmm. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now we're teaching the value of who you are and, and, and pursuing who you are as a person mm-hmm. is only allowed if you perform according to standard. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a slippery slope with a lot of things because it's taking away uh, the idea of the child uh, being themselves themselves that you know encouraging them to chase their interests or dreams really well, the kid comes home he has a b on a report card well you know You're uh, better most, than this. most astronauts usually have straight a's <laughs> well i can't be an astronaut so what am i going to do now but look i i can hear people out there yelling at me right now because it worked damn it look what i did right so imagine the first person yelling at me is telling me to look how I performed and what the results are <laughs> to prove that it works, mm-hmm. right? Well, it's not about the successes. It's about um, how you – none of us learn from success. We've always learned from mistakes and failures in life. We learn through consequences, which is why we try and – you know, it's good some, to teach our ch- children consequences and not always protect them, not always have that safety net. But you have to have, allow them to make the mistakes and face some of the consequences, and that's where they learn from. So I think there's a little bit of a difference between, you know, the people who are – yelling at you out there. I don't know why they're yelling, but I hear them with the pitchforks out there right now. Yeah, <laughs> I promise you, somebody is listening to this going, well, damn it, my daddy, and it worked for me, and look how much money I got, and I'm providing all this, so you can't tell me shit. Well, good for them, but they probably did it aside from their daddy. For me, if it worked, hell yeah. See, I'm, I'm a fan of what works. Honestly, I don't think there's a cookie-cutter approach to parenting or anything. What I like to joke about... Practical. I was like, look, if there was a one-answer solution for parenting, love, or anything, there wouldn't be so many fucking books on it, okay? Mm-hmm. There'd be like two books. But there's a million fucking books per topic. <laughs> look, so there's a million paths to different ways, right? It's how we get there. So I'm fucking nobody to, to, to say shit about what doesn't work, you know? No, no, absolutely. And uh, um, going back to kind of the, the CBT thing again now... Um, you know, adding on to, you know, we talked a little bit about depression. I'll add some about anxiety here, too, because that's one of the things that um, people struggle with more than anything is is anxiety. It's one of the, the largest, um, you know, diagnosed mental illnesses out there. Uh, I think I've seen uh, 90% of Americans have at some point had an anxiety disorder. Oh, imagine that. Um, Ellis would also argue that that's self-created. Well, in a lot of ways, it is. Anxiety is a, um, it, it was an adaptive, you know, it, it's ba- fear-based. It was adaptive. It was used for survival. Um, there's a bear chasing, you know, we're walking through the woods. We see a bear, fight or flight, some anxiety. There's a storm coming over. We start, you know. We're still, like, crossed over, man. We're, like, still so <laughs> kind of fucking primal ape, but is. we're still, like, but 
now we're looking at Mars. You know what I mean? It is. And basically, I ask people what the definition of anxiety is, and none of them really know. You know, nobody's been accurately able to say it. But if I say, you know, what's it feel like or are you having it? Everybody can say that. So here's basically the easiest definition of anxiety. Anxiety is a fear of an event in the future which may or may not occur. It's basically the fear of the unknown. And what happens with anxiety is that um, it's triggered once again by thoughts and worry. Um, worry is kind of a perpetual state of thought in which you go through these events, thoughts, feelings, then the feeling becomes the thought, the feeling becomes the event, which then triggers it again, and it becomes the snowball. Um, this cycle keeps going through, and basically it, it, that's what overthinking is, is when you go from an event to a thought to a feeling, and then the feeling becomes an event, and then there's a thought and the feeling, and then the feeling becomes the event again. And it's this kind of this cycle um, that we overthink. And when we overthink things, we start to distort reality. We start interjecting those thought distortions left and right. Uh, it snowballs, and it becomes almost something psychotic in a way. We kind of develop this normal psychosis, you know, where, and I know all of us have done it at some point, where we've taken one situation and we've overthought it so much that it's become something that it's not even real anymore. Um, so I, it, that's kind of how anxiety and CBT go together. And the key to that, again, is the awareness that, hold on, wait, stop, what am I doing? You know, I'm overthinking this. I'm jumping to conclusions. I just need to relax. I need to chill out. Um, this isn't as bad as what I think. And that's how you talk yourself back. And that's what, you know, me as a, a psychologist tries to teach my patients how to become their own psychologist in a way. Do you think you'll ever offer a college that says that degree? I think that's what the <laughs> fuck I did, Steve. I think when... Like, I write about that shit in the first chapter. I think, I don't know, my editor said take it out. But, whatever. Um, about <laughs> going to learn the practice itself, you know, to where you can kind of see all the research that's out there yourself, right? Because mm -hmm. it, it's there to an extent, you know, that you can, you know, follow certain interests that are out there, you know, to um, heal yourself in a way, you know, Um uh, to find that information that's out there, you know, I think psychologists and counselors, I mean, this is a much faster way there, definitely. Uh, and, um, I don't know, one one hundredth of the cost of a degree these days. So, you know, <laughs> definitely seeing somebody to assist you along the way. Well, I, I think it does take a trained mental health professional to help you and assist you. Yeah, especially applying, applying approaches like this. And, and just, not every approach is the same. You know, I, I think CBT works for some people. I don't think it works for everybody. I think, it, you know, I, I, I don't use this. I use CBT as a tool. You well, know? I, I'm glad you wanted to talk about it, though, you know, because mm -hmm. it, it's true. Because CBT is out there. And I people talk about it. Uh, they use it in quick phrases. I hear it in conversations sometimes. And people talk about, uh, not practitioners, people that heard about something. Uh, which for me, I, I'm good. I'm glad that I'm excited that I'm hearing about that stuff in common mm -hmm. conversation. That makes me so excited uh, that it's not just 12 steps I'm hearing about, which that too has its, has its uh, successes. But, you know, I'm glad that that conversation is spreading, you know, about those um, uh, researches, those theories, and how we can apply them to ourselves, you know, and really teach ourselves 
uh, that. But I, I won't, I'm glad you talked about CBT, CT, REBT, fucking alphabet <laughs> after alphabets. Dude, when I first got into the, the studying this stuff, I'm like, enough with the fucking acronyms, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ABC. Oh, God, and the ABCs of Ellis, but... I mean, it, yeah. it, 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 these are necessary building blocks, I think, to build on, you know, the human experience from a psychological standpoint. Absolutely. And this is just one theory of a lot of them out there. And this is, you know, I, I encourage a uh, somebody who's out there looking for a psychologist to ask questions about what modality they are. Um, don't get stuck in just one modality. You know, I, I wouldn't want to go to somebody who just does CBT or just does interpersonal therapy. You want somebody well-versed and trained in a lot of these because sometimes, you know, I base my treatments off of people's personalities based off of their needs, based off of their goals. And I might pick and, you know, pull and choose things from here and there. I'm not going to sit down with somebody and just go with one form of therapy at any given time. And I think that's why, uh, why there's always going to need to be psychologists and uh, well-trained mental health, health uh, counselors out there because the manual-based treatments do not work for everybody. Um, you know, there's a portion of out there they're going to work for, but you need somebody well-trained who knows what's going to work for you and will work with you best on it. Yeah, I, I'm glad the stigma is going down. Uh, I mm -hmm. think it is going down, you know, compared to what it used to be, you know, say 20, 30 years ago, the idea mm -hmm. of what therapy meant, you know, and seeking that out. And now there's a lot of different, you know, variations of therapy, counseling, coaching, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera. All these are good approaches, you know, at least if the person you're working with, uh, you have a relationship with, you can connect with, uh, is knowledgeable and at least um, being able to walk you through certain psychological guidelines, at least, you know, about why things uh, are happening, like thoughts that trigger feelings, that trigger behavior, mm -hmm. um, and, and trying to get people to grasp those notions, uh, I think is important. You know, they get a walkthrough. I mean, dude, see, we've wrapped up like an hour and change, haven't we, brother? Dude, Doc, you want to keep going? Uh, it's up to you. We may rock out, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm always happy to come back, too. Oh, man. We may have to pick this up on part two, man, and, and, <laughs> and keep rolling on, on, on this idea. Because CBT, imagine that. We got off on the tangent. Imagine I did. A rampage, know. right? <laughs> you know, but that, I'm glad we did talk about, you know. This was a true cognitive rampage. Right? <laughs> we went off. But, I mean, it's good, though, because, you know, if anybody listening hears that notion of cognitive therapy, mm -hmm. you know, they get a basis of where it comes from, where it's pulled out of. Mm -hmm. um, kind of a practice of it, you know, how it's used. I, I, I think it's probably the mainstream, isn't it, in private practice, wouldn't you say? I, I think not so much. Really? <laughs> no, I, I think no shit. in general with, with really well-trained psychologists, um, they look at the relationship first. They see the bigger picture, and they don't get ever tuned into any one intervention too much. Um you know, they, there's all sorts of research out there that shows that the therapeutic relationship is 50 to 65 percent of actual change and effectiveness in therapy, and that the intervention only accounts for about 15 percent of change. Yeah. So a lot of times it doesn't even matter as much about the intervention as a good therapeutic relationship with your counselor or therapist. 
You heard it here first on the cognitive rampant. No, that's a good. That's a good way to end it because I think you're right. Because despite all the deep psychological stuff that we get into about theoretical perspective concepts, theories, notions, mm-hmm. empirical data, manual data, self-based data, any of this idea or it's all about people. Yeah, about that connection. Really, if somebody wants to help you, can can understand you. Uh, you know, and is willing. And honestly, it's about the person that wants to change, too. It's about the intrinsic motivation that mm-hmm. you have as an individual to change. You know, I, I, I like to say that extrinsic motivation, we all know, is motivation from the exterior, which is good. And that can lead you to the water. Mm-hmm. But intrinsic motivation helps you drink the water. And trust me, there are millions laying dead along the water. Mm-hmm. You know, so finding that intrinsic motivation, I think, uh, to seek out help. You know, from mm-hmm. somebody else to, to, to find that right match. And I would encourage people even, you know, don't give up even after one or two or three people uh, that you've reached out to. If you've reached out mm-hmm. to a psychologist, you've reached out to a, a life coach, you've reached out to somebody like that. And if it didn't work out, don't, you know, don't generalize too much. Keep pushing and keep, uh, you know, trying to meet new and, try, and trying to find that therapeutic uh, uh, connection because mm-hmm. you know, you're saying that that's the most important. And listen. You know, keep reaching out and listen. Even if you don't always like what you hear or what someone has to say, you know, take it in. Don't judge. Don't label. And just kind of ponder. Sit with it for a while. You know, is there some form of truth to what someone says, even if it's something that you don't particularly like? You know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, the the best therapists are the ones that you don't really like. (laughs) Of course, not me. Everybody likes me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that would ring true on a sports end, too. You know, the coaches mm-hmm. sometimes we hate up front yes. ends up being the best ones for us, man. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the same with approaches and books and people, right? The ones that we uh, end up not liking up front end up being the best things for us in the end. Yeah, maybe it's rubbing up against some of those defense mechanisms that you, you, you have to address. And, you know, I think that comes back to being humble enough to be able to question yourself. When that rub happens, when that difference of opinion happens or mm-hmm. that, you know, personal devalue occurs between the relationship with a, a therapist or a practitioner or a counselor or a coach or what have you. Mm-hmm. And sitting in that uncomfortable, you know, <laughs> and sitting in that uncomfortable for the change and letting that connection occur with, with, with the practitioner, man. Absolutely. Dude, let's do a part two, man. You want to hang out for a little while? I'd love to hang out. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Today we are powered by SWATMMA.com. That's my friends Jeff and Julian at SWAT MMA Extreme and Fitness in Winter Garden, Florida. From jiu-jitsu to personal training, kickboxing, Muay Thai, or just all-around fitness, you really need to check out my friends Jeff and Julian at SWATMMA.com. They will change your life.